Thank you for being with us uh, this morning. As uh, Josh had said, Pastor Troy is in uh, Cartersville, Georgia this morning. Uh, I don't believe he's preaching this morning. I think his first uh, session is tonight. And Pastor Jeff, uh, he, he said he, he preached at a gypsy church in Romania this morning. And he was, he was then just about to go to a Hungarian church. Um, so I don't know if he's preaching right now or if that's already happened. He texted me earlier today, but uh, be, be brained for those guys. Uh, so I'm with you this morning. My name is Craig Warner, one of the pastors here on staff. And again, just want to say uh, welcome to those of you that are especially newer to First Baptist Church. Uh, we're glad that you're here um, today. We're going to be continuing in our study of the book of Acts this morning. So if you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and grab it. Might as well open it if you brought it. Turn to Acts chapter 2. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one in the pew in front of you. A bunch of the verses will be up on the screen. Um, but go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 2. Uh, and uh, we got a long, a long passage today, okay? So I need you guys to stick with me this morning. But before we get into that, let's take a look at where we left our apostles off at, okay? So Troy has done a thorough job of teaching all that's taken place before this point in the book of Acts, and next week we'll see what happens immediately after our passage for today, but all these things are so closely related that there's going to be some overlap in between each of them, okay? So let's just do a quick recap, because what I think happens today um, is, is a really big deal in the book of Acts, okay? So Acts chapter 1, we saw it was after Christ's resurrection. Jesus is giving uh, the apostles and his, the, his disciples some instruction. Verses 4 and 5, he tells them to wait for the promise of the Holy Ghost. We've talked about that quite a bit over the last several weeks. We see it several places in the gospel. But he tells them to wait for that and uh, to stay in Jerusalem. Uh, verse number 6 of Acts 1, these guys are still a little confused about how this whole kingdom thing is working out. So if you are too, you're not alone. Okay, The guys that were following Jesus around for a while, they were still a little confused. But um, you know, just like them, God will eventually open your understanding to that. So just keep sticking around and, and you'll figure that out. But these guys are waiting for a physical kingdom to show up, to be established, to take place. We call that the kingdom of what? The kingdom of... Heaven, okay? The kingdom of heaven versus the kingdom of God. There's a distinction between the two. And the thing is, the kingdom of heaven, this physical kingdom, is still a very real possibility at this point in the book of Acts. Uh, and then verse number 8, this is the key verse to, to the entire book, really, okay? Acts 1.8. We even had some shirts made up last year with that verse on it. And I, some, uh, someone's wearing it today. I think I saw Cody had it on today, right? So Acts 1.8 is the key verse in the whole book. And so he tells them that they're going to get power from the Holy Ghost and they should be witnesses of him. And where should they start? In Jerusalem. If you're not sure, just reference Cody's shirt or your Bible. Same thing. Okay? So they're going to start in Jerusalem, then to Judea, Samaria, ultimately to the uttermost. But they start in Jerusalem. And then Christ descends to heaven to take his place at the right hand of God. The Father leaves the apostles to continue the work that he started. Okay, that's Acts 1. Acts 2, last week we saw the events that took place at Pentecost. Pentecost was a, a feast that they celebrated. It was an event. And the apostles are all together in one accord when they're suddenly filled with the Holy Ghost. This is the promise. It's finally come. The Holy Ghost has finally filled them. They begin speaking in tongues. And we're not going to take a lot of time to talk about that today, but those are known languages, right? It's not just some made-up language. We can see here it even lists... Um, in chapter 2, all the languages that they were speaking, okay? But this is, a, this is a miraculous event that's taking place, and so naturally, it draws a crowd. So a crowd forms, okay? So here we are, the moment that these guys have been waiting for, right? They've been waiting to receive the Holy Ghost. They've been told to wait in Jerusalem. They're hearing stuff. They're seeing stuff. They're being used in this miraculous event. And the first thing that they encounter is a doubtful and a mocking crowd. Right? Not quite the welcome that they were looking for. Not the response that they were hoping for, but this is where we pick up. Okay, So this is where we pick up in Acts chapter 2. And again, I said this is a long one, so let's go ahead, let's read it together. Stick with me, and then we'll begin to take a close look at it and break it down. We're going to read from Acts chapter 2 all the way to verse 36. And what this basically is, is Peter's message that day at Pentecost. And we'll see that Peter preaches 
repentance. Okay? Um, so we're, we're starting chapter 14. Let's get a running start and start in chapter 12. So Acts 2, uh, verse 12. Okay? Uh, and they were all amazed, talking about the crowd, and were in doubt, saying one to another, What meaneth this? Others mocking said, These men are full of new wine. Okay, then here's where our passage picks up. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. For these men are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass, in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before that great and notable day of the Lord." And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Verse 22, ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand, and I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life, thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance." Verse 29, hang in there, we're almost done. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne, he, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath, hath, hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord saith unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly, that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Thank you for coming today. We'll see you guys next week. That's all we have time for. Okay, long passage. Let's pray and then we'll get into it. Lord, we come to you this morning. And uh, we have a lot of ground to cover, uh, God. But I just pray that through this, your spirit would work. Lord, that you would move me out of the way. It would be your word that is spoken this morning. And it would touch the hearts of men and women this morning. Uh, and you would teach all of us what you have for us to learn. And God, I want to pray especially for those that might be here that are outside of a relationship with you. Lord, that you would, that you would uh, convict their hearts and, and draw them closer to you. Lord, we pray these things in your name. Amen. Okay, so the way we're going to break it down this morning is we're going to take a look at the preacher, the message, or excuse me, the preacher, the crowd, and the message. Okay, so we're going to break it up a little bit. So our first point is the preacher. Okay, we know that according to Galatians 2, that Peter was an apostle to the Jews, right? Peter's the one that's preaching here. This is important context. We have to know that Peter is an apostle, the one that is sent to the Jews, the nation of Israel. And we'll continue to, to repeat this because if you apply what is happening in these key parts of Acts to the wrong group of people, you're going to get bad doctrine. You can find teachers trying to apply Acts 2 to the church today all over the place. Uh, actually, in fact, just the other week. Uh, so there's, uh, there's a Bible app that I use on my phone, and they have a little, it's called Kids Experience. Uh, and so on the way to school, I get to take my girls to school. We'll, um, we'll, we'll listen or watch one of those. It's just a quick little video. And they usually just take a verse or something and explain it. Well, the other week, they, they took a, a verse out of Acts chapter 2, and they started teaching it, trying to apply it to uh, a believer, a New Testament believer today. And so, you know, usually they're pretty harmless, but I was like, okay, listen, just so you know, 
that's not true, okay? And then I read to them Acts 14 through 36, and I, no, I, I didn't do all that, but <clears throat> uh, <laughs> we're like three minutes from their school. We didn't quite have that amount of time, but, uh, but you can find it everywhere. That's the point. People trying to take what God is doing in Acts 2 and apply it to the church today, and you can't do that. You get your doctrine messed up, okay? So Peter is the apostle to the Jews. He's the preacher. He's the one preaching to them, okay? And what we're going to see are some key characteristics of an effective preacher. And the first thing that we're going to see about this preacher, Peter, is that he is, letter A, willing to stand up and speak out. He's willing to stand up and to speak out. Look again in verse 14. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem. Okay, so here's Peter. They're, they're encountering, um, you know, some pushback from this crowd. I can just imagine they're all standing there, you know, and the other eleven are just kind of all like looking at Peter like, you want to handle this one, right? Because Peter's never short on something to say. So Peter stands up and he speaks out. There are a few things significant about Peter here. The first is the position that we find Peter in. Notice that Peter is standing up. Okay, now if we compare that to the last recorded position of Peter and the other uh, disciples, we see in verse 2 that he was sitting. And Troy had mentioned this last week, but Acts 2, 1 and 2, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. Okay? They were all sitting. And we know from Acts 1.14 that when they are in one accord, it is with prayer and supplication. And so what we see is a direct correlation between being in prayer and in supplication with God and in fellowship and unity with your brothers that lead to your ability to boldly proclaim the word of God. The time you spend sitting with the Lord results in standing up for him. Not only do we see Peter standing up, but we also see him speaking out, right? It says that he lifted up his voice. And again, there's more to this than just Peter raising his voice so that he could be heard over the crowd, because let's be honest, right? That's just classic Peter, right? He had no problem speaking up. But Peter lifting up his voice is significant because it ties back to prophecy in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 58.1. It says, cry aloud, spare not, lift up thy voice like a trumpet. And show my people, who are God's people, the nation of Israel, their transgression and the house of Jacob, their sins. And when we take a closer look at Peter's message in a bit, he is about to convict Israel of their sin of crucifying their Messiah. Okay? But here's something that all of us can take away from Peter's newfound boldness. Notice the change that we see in Peter from just a short time ago in the Gospels. In the Gospels, we see a confused Peter. He couldn't quite grasp all that Jesus was teaching him. But now we see him spitting out Old Testament Scripture left and right to point people to Christ. We also see that he was ashamed. When Jesus was on trial, Peter denied him. But now, he has the boldness to preach Christ to a hostile crowd. And how gracious our God is, despite all of Peter's faults and shortcomings, he has the opportunity to preach the first sermon after Christ's ascension. And if you identify with Peter more in the Gospels, confused and ashamed, than you do with him in the book of Acts, competent and bold, then there is one major thing missing in your life that Peter discovered made all the difference. And that brings us to our next point. He was filled with the Spirit. He was filled with the Spirit. Look in verse 15. So remember, they were accused of being drunk. Verse 15, Peter says, For these are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. Okay, so according to the Jewish clock, this is 9 a.m. It's interesting that these men are accused of being drunk because we see this comparison between being drunk and being filled with the Spirit. In Ephesians 5.18, Be not drunk with wine wherein is access, but be filled with the Spirit. Look in verse uh, 4 of Acts 2. So we saw this last week. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. When these men were filled with the Spirit, something was different about them. Right? They stuck out like a drunk in a crowd of devout Jews at 9 in the morning. You guys familiar with that old saying? 
stick out like a drunk in a crowd? No? I, I, just, I think I just made it up. Let's get that going, okay? Let's see if we can, <laughs> let's see if we can get some traction on that one, okay? But they were peculiar. There was something different about them. You see, being filled with the Spirit is unfamiliar to an unbelieving world. Something seems off about a man or a woman that is controlled by the Spirit of God, and those around such an individual will take notice. But Peter doesn't argue with his detractors. He doesn't try to justify himself. He doesn't get caught up in empty arguments. No, all he does is let her see he allows the Word to do the work. He allows the Word to do the work. Peter simply dismisses their accusation, and he points them to Scripture for their answer. Acts 2.16, but this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. We'll take a closer look at that in a bit, but what I want us to see is that Peter understands that the only thing that convinced this crowd is the Word of God. Peter knows that this crowd won't be won by logic and reasoning. They won't be persuaded by his debate tactics. They won't be moved by discourse. The only thing that can change a man's heart is the truth of God's Word. And that's where you can find the real value of any preacher, in his ability to allow the Word of God to do the work of God. And that's why anytime any one of us are up here, our prayer is always that God would move us out of the way so that His Word can have free course. Because nothing we have to say is worth anything. We simply want to be a mouthpiece for God's Word. And the same should be true of you, by the way. Isaiah 55 puts it like this. For as the rain cometh down, and the snow from heaven, and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth, and bud, that it may give seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. As long as it's God's word that goes forth, it will do what God wants it to do. But as soon as man gets his ambitious hands on it and tries to make God's word do what he wants it to do, it it diminishes its purpose and becomes void. God forbid that we should ever be found guilty of that. This applies to all of us, again, not just preachers in the formal sense. While you should be a part of a church whose preachers meet these qualifications when they present the Word of God, the truth is, as ministers of the Gospel, we are all preachers. We've all been called to preach. Because let's look at Peter. He's not even a preacher in the typical sense, right? Peter's not in a church in Acts 2. He doesn't have a pulpit to stand behind or a study sheet to pass out. He doesn't have notes to refer to. He doesn't even have a copy of the Bible in front of him to read from. He's just out living his life, trying to be sensitive to what the Spirit is doing. So don't just judge the pastors by these criteria. Look at your own life as well. All right, so we saw who's preaching. It's Peter. Now let's look at who he is preaching to, and let's look at the crowd. Let's look at the crowd. Number two. So we're in Jerusalem. Those in attendance were Jews that heard the news of the speaking in tongues, They've gathered together to see this miraculous spectacle, and that's the first thing that we have to keep in mind, is that this is a Jewish audience, okay? We're going to keep hitting that. We don't want to get our doctrine messed up. We don't want to apply something to the wrong group of people. So not only do we see this context in the verses preceding Peter's preaching, but we also are reminded of whom he is speaking to as he addresses them throughout his message. Look in verse 14, he says, "'Ye men of Judea.'" And all ye that dwell at Jerusalem. Acts uh, 2.22, ye men of Israel. Acts 2.29, men and brethren. Right, Peter was a Jew and he's referring to the other Jews as his brothers. Listen, you have to be willingly ignorant of the context in Acts 2 to try to apply this to someone outside of the nation of Israel. Outside of a Jewish audience. Okay? And listen... I told you we're going to keep hitting that, okay? And you haven't heard the last of it, especially as we get into next week, where we'll see the results of Peter's message. But we have to understand that Peter is talking to a Jewish audience as we're transitioning out of an Old Testament economy into the church. There are things that take place within this book that overlap and that bleed into one another, and it gets messy. And if we don't keep our context straight, we're going to get turned around and we're going to get messed up, all right? So now that we're clear on whom the crowd is made up of, let's take a look at their perspective, okay? And we kind of already saw this, but the crowd is primarily skeptical 
and critical. Skeptical and critical, letter B. We see that there are two main mindsets in this crowd, and to see them, we need to look back at last week's passage at the verses just before our passage for today. This is where we started reading to get a running start. But in Acts 2, verses 12 and 13, and they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, what meaneth this? Others, mocking, said, these men are full of new wine. The crowd's response to what they are seeing just goes to show how disconnected they were from what God is doing. If on your way home, you drove downtown and started seeing stuff and hearing stuff like this crowd was seeing and hearing, would you accuse those people of being drunk or would you think, maybe I'm drunk, right? You're like, I should not be operating heavy machinery. I need to go lay down, right? When you start seeing stuff like this, But this crowd is so callous to God's spirit that they blame the guys that God is using of sin so that they can excuse themselves from obeying the clear truth of God's word. I'm just going to repeat that in case anyone missed it. Okay, This crowd is so callous to God's spirit that they blame the guys that God is using of sin so that they can excuse themselves from obeying the clear truth of God's word. This is the crazy part to me. All right, what is it that Jews require? A sign, right? According to 1 Corinthians 1.22, the Jews require a sign. They want some sort of proof that what you're claiming is actually from God. Well, what's happening here in Acts 2 is a sign from God if I ever saw one, right? They wanted a sign and they had a sign. But sometimes your heart can be so hardened against the Spirit of God that you will still doubt and discredit what He is doing, even if He gives you exactly what you want. I'm going to repeat that one too. Sometimes your heart can be so hardened against the Spirit of God that you will still doubt and discredit what He is doing, even if He gives you exactly what you want. Dear believer, don't let that be true of you. So we've got the preacher We've got the crowd. Now let's take a a close look at what Peter was saying. Okay, There's a bit more to wade through here than our previous two points because there's a lot happening in this long passage. All right, so you guys ready to do the work with me? All right, so point number three, the message. The message. The goal of Peter's message is to prove that Jesus was the Messiah and to lead Israel as a nation to repentance for crucifying Christ. This would then lead to the events preceding the return of Christ to set up his physical kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, in Jerusalem with the nation of Israel. However, it's all conditional on Israel's response as a nation. As a nation, not as individuals. Because, spoiler alert, They ultimately double or even triple down and reject Jesus as the Messiah, which then leads to the church aides, and we dirty Gentiles get in on the deal. And what we're seeing in Acts 2 are the seeds of the church being planted and begin to sprout, which comes as a result of Peter's message. Peter's message was effective for some individuals. And so what I want us to to look at is the different points or the components of Peter's message And how that applies to anyone sharing God's word in any context. But then we'll also take a deeper look at just what he is saying and what that means to the crowd that's present, to the Jewish audience. Okay? So it's a bit of a Bible study, but here we go. The key components of an effective message. These are the key components of an effective message. Letter A, it begins with Scripture. It begins with Scripture. Now, I don't just mean that's the first thing that you say, although, you know, that's a good place to start. Usually at the front end of any message on a Sunday morning here, right, we we get into whatever passage we're reading. But what that does is it establishes the credibility of the preacher for Peter. So it begins with Scripture in the sense that every effective message is based in and exposited from the Word of God. This goes back to our point uh, that we saw uh, under the preacher section is that an effective preacher is, allows the Word to do the work. Right? It's not about what the preacher thinks or even wants to say. He simply begins with Scripture and allows the Spirit to take it from there. Okay. So now we're going to go through this you know, fairly long passage almost line by line. Okay? We'll, 
we'll look at some bigger chunks together. But let's look uh, in verse 16 where he starts into the message. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. Okay, so let's break down what Peter's preaching here. He has dismissed their accusations of being drunk, and then he points them to the prophet Joel. He's not saying everything that's happening right now is what Joel was talking about, because we'll see that everything in this passage uh, in Acts 2, not everything that Joel mentions happened at Pentecost, okay? But he's saying, let me tell you what Joel said. This is what Joel said. This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. He then proceeds to quote Joel 2, 28 through 32. So I think that reference is on your study sheet, but we won't go there um, because uh, he's pretty much quoting it. However, there are a few differences that we'll take note of, and actually we find one here in the first line, verse 17. And it shall come to pass in the last days. Now any Bible student, their ears should perk up whenever you hear that phrase, right? It's an interesting phrase, in the last days. The passage in Joel that Peter is quoting uses the word afterward. But the Holy Ghost, through Peter, translates it to in the last days. The last days in Scripture are the days leading up to Christ's return. It's almost as if God foreshadows what is on the line in Acts 2 depending on Israel's response. Because remember, if they repent as a nation, Christ will ultimately return to set up his earthly kingdom. Okay? So it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. What we see taking place at Pentecost here is what I would call the first drops of that pouring out. Okay, The apostles have obviously received uh, the spirit, but it's a far cry from the spirit being poured out on all flesh, like it mentions in our passage. But God is using this to reveal to the nation of Israel that what these guys are saying is from God and that they had better listen up. Verse 18, on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit and they shall prophesy. Okay, another interesting phrase, right? In those days refers to tribulation period. These days could be the days preceding those days. Was that confusing? Okay, sorry. I'll try to clear it up here in a second. But ultimately, what's happening in Acts 2 could be what takes place right before the tribulation or Daniel's 70th week as far as the Jews are concerned. Okay, another name for it. Because what we saw in Joel was beginning to happen with the Spirit filling the apostles. Right? So events are in motion. Things are happening here in Acts 2. However, the next couple of verses did not happen at Pentecost, okay, at this event. And they have yet to happen at this point in history. So we can't say that Acts 2 was the complete fulfillment of Joel 2. Because this stuff doesn't happen, start in verse 19. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before... That great and terrible, or excuse me, great and notable day of the Lord. Okay, so these things did not happen in Acts 2. However, all these things were still on the table depending on Israel's response at this point. These things were possible up until Acts 7 when the nation of Israel rejects Christ for the last time with the stoning of Stephen. Okay, we've talked about that a few times, and if I'm losing you, I am so sorry. But. As Troy has been saying, just keep coming and God will continue to teach you. Also, Troy will clear all this up when we get to Acts 7 in a, in a few months, okay? So just hang in there. But we know that these signs in heaven and in earth will happen, okay? Verse 20 tells us that they take place when? Before that great and notable day of the Lord. That's the second coming of Christ, right? The day of the Lord. That's the second coming of Christ, we can understand this better from where we sit today because we have something that the Jews in Acts 2 did not. We have Romans to Revelation, right? We have a completed Bible. And we can see these things will take place when God's wrath is poured out in those days of the tribulation period. Look at Revelation 6.12. And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair. And the moon became as blood 
right? So the stuff that Joel is talking about in Joel chapter 2, and even, you know, Peter referencing it in Acts chapter 2, is pointing to what's happening in Revelation 6, when all the seals are poured out on the earth uh, during the tribulation, right? The sun turns black, the moon becomes his blood. And look at this, for Revelation 6.17. This is what it's talking about. This is, the, this is when it's happening. For the great day, what's the great day? It's the second coming of Christ, the second advent. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who shall be able to stand? These things did not take place in Acts 2, but it's a sure bet that they will happen. Peter lets them know that something is happening, that day is coming, and you can be saved from it. And that's true for all of us. Verse 21, and it shall come to pass that whosoever, now who does that include? Everyone, Jews and Gentiles included, that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. We can all be saved from that day of wrath that's coming. For the Jews, it looked one way. For us today, it looks another. Peter is letting them know that you can escape God's wrath by calling on his name. And again, spoiler alert, 3,000 souls did so that day. Okay, so just to peek ahead into next week, Acts 2, 40 through 41. And with many other words, this is right after Peter's message. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. He says, save yourselves from this untoward generation. Separate yourselves from the judgment that awaits the rest of the nation. Because remember, Peter's goal is to get the nation to repent. Not individuals, but the nation. And so there are some individuals that repent and accept Christ as the Messiah. And Peter's saying, listen, you can save yourself from the fate that's awaiting the rest of the nation if you call upon the name of the Lord. Okay? Because we know that Israel rejects Christ. But there are many individual Jews that repent. In fact, Scripture alludes to this back in Joel 2, in the passage that he's quoting, which was conveniently left out in Peter's message. All right, so let's look at Joel 2.32. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered or shall be saved. That's where Peter ends, but that's not where Joel ends. For in Mount Zion and in where? Jerusalem. Where are they? Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord hath said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. So in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. What's remnant? A remnant is a portion. It's a part of. It's a smaller group of a larger group, right? The whole nation was called to repent, but in the book of Acts, only a remnant of individuals actually did. And do you know what's incredible about this verse in Joel? Is that it's also true... For what will take place in the future, there will be a remnant of Jews that God uses during the tribulation. So how can it be prophesying what takes place in Acts 2 and at the same time what will take place during a time yet to come? Because all of these last days events are still possible in Acts 2 depending on Israel's response as a nation. Peter's trying to get them to repent and accept Christ as their Messiah to establish his kingdom on the earth. Okay? Can't say it enough. And to that end, Peter moves to his next point, which means so do we. Letter B. Peter preaches Christ crucified. He preaches Christ crucified. We just saw a minute ago in 1 Corinthians 1.22 that the Jews require a sign, right? But that statement goes on to say that even though they require a sign as the church, we are to preach Christ crucified. Look at 1 Corinthians again. 1 Corinthians 1.23-24. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, right? They, they couldn't quite figure it out. They want a sign, they got a sign, but now Peter's preaching Christ crucified. They're, they're still not getting it. Unto the Greeks foolishness, but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. See, so we're in this transition between the nation of Israel and the church. And so even though the Jews want a sign and they got one, Peter is still compelled to preach the crucifixion of Christ. Acts 2, 22. Ye men of Israel... 
hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. Okay? So he starts to preach Christ crucified, and he starts with calling him Jesus of Nazareth. Peter is making it very clear about whom he is talking about. They knew that the prophets talked about this, that, that the Messiah would come out of Nazareth. They make reference to them. You can see that in Matthew 2. You can see it in John 1. We won't go there for time's sake. But they even wrote it on the sign above the cross that they hung Jesus on. Look at John 19, 19. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Listen, there was no mistake of who Peter was referring to. Okay, so there's only one Jesus Christ as far as I'm concerned, but way back then, you know, there's probably a lot of guys that went by that name, Jesus, okay? They're probably sitting there like, yeah, I had, a, I had a neighbor Jesus once. Do you think that's, the, think that's the Jesus he's talking about? No, it's the Jesus of Nazareth. They make it very clear. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Right? His miracles were just proof that the Father had sent him. We see this in John 5.36, and you can look that on your own, but we're going to take a look at John 11.47. Right? Because uh, in, John 11, or excuse me, in John 5, Christ is saying, look, I do these works just to prove that my Father has sent me. But look in John eleven forty seven. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees. All right, these are the bad guys. These are the ones that wanted Jesus crucified. But then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees at council and said, What do we? They're like, What are we going to do? For this man doeth many miracles. They knew who Jesus of Nazareth was. They knew it. There was no mistaking him. Even the ones that wanted him crucified couldn't deny what he did. Verse 23. Him, Jesus, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Uh-oh. We're getting into some scary words here. And I don't mean wicked or slain. I mean determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Right? Sounds like something a Calvinist would say. But when you come across those words, there's no reason to be afraid of them. If you do the study and allow God's word to define them for you, not some Reformed theologian who attaches his personal interpretation onto these kinds of words, then there's no reason to be afraid of them. Okay? So let's take a look at what God's talking about. How would he explain it? <clears throat> well, let me just say this. Ultimately, determinate counsel basically means... Is it's what will happen, it's what happened to Christ was already decided before it happened. Okay? And we'll see that here in Acts. Let's look at a few verses. Acts 3.18. But those things which God before had showed by the mouth of all his prophets, as prophesied beforehand, what did they prophesy? That Christ should suffer, he hath so fulfilled. Right? So this crucifixion of Christ, it's already been prophesied. It's already been talked about before God. He's already shown it to us by the prophets before it came to pass. Look at Acts 4.28. For to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. Whatever God's will decided, that will be done, right? His counsel equals his will. It's the same, it's, it's the same thing, similar thing. Let's look at Isaiah 46.10-11. Declaring the end from the beginning... And from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, okay, things that are still to happen, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. This is obviously God speaking. Verse 11, calling a ravenous bird from the east, the man that executeth my counsel from a far country, yea, I have spoken it, I will also bring it to pass, I have purposed it, I will also do it. You see, Christ's crucifixion has been foreshadowed and foretold in God's word since Genesis. Therefore, it has already been determined to happen because what God has spoken, he will bring it to pass. What he has purpose, he will do it. It is inevitable. All right, this is not saying that God has decided before, you know, the foundations of time or, you know, that this is going to happen to all these people. It just means that before this point, when Christ was crucified, God had already prophesied it. And if he said it, it's as good as done. 
Calvinists like to talk about God's sovereignty. Well, even our free will can't keep God's word from being accomplished. That's sovereignty. And as far as foreknowledge goes, that's just knowing what will happen before it happens. And so, of course, God foreknew what would happen to Jesus. He is omniscient. He is all-knowing. But it's also because his word said it would happen. And do you know what that means? That means that you, too, can have the foreknowledge of God. Just simply look at this book, and if God said it will happen, then you can guarantee it. That's it. You can know what's going to happen before it happens if God said it'll happen. The example here even in Acts, the moon and the sun, right? What's happening to that? It hasn't happened yet. God said it will happen in Revelation. So you now have the foreknowledge of God of what will happen. And because God said it will happen, it's determined to, ha- to happen. It's the determinate counsel, okay? It's as good as done. So, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Let's look at Luke 24. We've seen uh, parts of this passage a few times. Luke 24, 44 through 49. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses. Okay, this stuff, it has to happen. It's already been written. And in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. This is Christ speaking. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. And said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. Verse 47, And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning where? In Jerusalem. Where did, God, where did Christ tell them to wait? In Jerusalem. Where is Peter first preaching repentance? In Jerusalem. You guys caught on. Very good. In Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses of these things. Verse 49, and behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. What's that promise? It's the promise of the Holy Ghost. But tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. It behooved Christ. It was required of him. It was appropriate for him to suffer. Why? Because it was already written. And whatever God has declared to do, it's going to happen. It's as good as done. Now, referring to the crucifixion, let's look at Luke 22, 22, and Matthew 26. And there's, there's a very key difference I want us to see here that will help us understand the idea of even what we were just talking about, the determinant counsel. Luke twenty two twenty two, 22. Uh, and truly the Son of Man goeth as it was determined, but woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. It was what? It was determined. Look at Matthew 26, 24. The Son of Man goeth as it was, or as it is, written of him. Okay? This is the same account here. But in uh, Luke, it was determined. In Matthew, it was written. So what is the determinate counsel of God? It's just what was written beforehand. Okay? And it goes on to say, But woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Again, we're talking about the crucifixion. Christ was betrayed by Judas that ultimately led to the crucifixion. What does he say? It had been good for that man if he had not been born. So comparing these two verses, we see that determined just means written. No reason to be afraid of those those words. We also see that just because Christ's death was already determined, that doesn't mean it's okay for you to be a part of it. Our sin put him on that cross as much as anything, and therefore we have the same responsibility to repent as the Jews that called for his crucifixion. Verse 23, him being delivered, okay, so we're backing up a little bit, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. So God delivered him over, verse 23, him being delivered, okay, he was delivered over to be crucified, Why? Because God knew that he would resurrect him. In John 10, 
Uh, actually, you should add verse 17 on your notes there. I didn't have that in there. I started in 18. But start in verse 17 so you know what he's talking about. In, in John 10, 18, he's talking about his life. Christ is talking about his, his life, his physical life on the earth. No man take it from me, my life, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. This commandment have I received of my Father. Right? So God delivered him over to be crucified because he knew that he would raise him up. Romans 6.4 says, Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father. And I love this verse, Revelation 1.18. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and of death. You know why death couldn't hold him? Because Christ had the keys. And we have so much to talk about in this section here. But no time to talk about it. Okay, I'm so sorry. Peter preaches that Christ has been crucified and that he has resurrected. And all of these claims are supported by Scripture. Letter C. They're all supported by Scripture. Remember, these are key components to an effective message. The stuff that Peter was saying, he then supports it with Scripture. Peter is using Scripture again to make his point, And he quotes Psalm 16. 8 through 11. Again, we won't turn there, but that's what he's quoting. Peter continues to point the crowd back to Scripture because the audience didn't have a hard time believing the prophets or David, right? They would know them. They would be familiar with them. They would even claim to believe them. What they struggled to see is what God was doing in their midst. And so Peter had to show them with God's word what God is up to currently. So Acts 2, 25 through 28. And he, he begins to, to quote um, quote Psalm 16, for David speaketh concerning him, referring to, to Christ. So David spoke concerning Christ, and then he goes into Psalm 16. I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand, important phrase, that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, important phrase, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one, to see corruption, another important phrase. And we'll get to all, what all that means here in a minute. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Okay, so key phrases here is he's on my right hand. He'll not leave my soul in hell. He'll not suffer his holy one to see corruption. We're going to talk about the significance of what Peter is quoting here in our next point, which is letter D. He expounds on Scripture. He expounds on Scripture. So he supports what he's saying with Scripture, and then he goes and he expounds on Scripture. Peter quotes uh, these verses that a crowd of devout Jews would be familiar with. He then goes on to explain what it means. Okay, so verse 29. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David. Okay, so he just quoted David in Psalm 16. He's like, all right, now let me freely speak to you. Let me just, let me just lay out what David was saying here. Because David, he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. So he points out that David is dead, and in fact did see corruption. They could go and dig up what was left of his body and see for themselves. He flat out says it later in Acts, Acts 13.36, For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on sleep and was laid unto his fathers and saw corruption. Okay? So he saw corruption. But he says this, Peter says this about David in verse 30. Therefore, being a prophet, David was a prophet, so in other words, he saw uh, things before. And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne, on David's throne. So Peter points out that David was a prophet, so the things that he was talking about were pointing to events yet future. God promised David that the Messiah would sit on David's throne, representing a physical kingdom, right? That's what the Jews have been waiting for. That's what's still on the table, even at this point. Uh, you can see this in 2 Samuel, 1 Chronicles, Psalms uh, 89. Those are on your study sheet there. You can check those out on your own. We see that Christ came through David's physical lineage, or his physical seed, to sit on David's throne. You can see that, Romans 1.3, Isaiah 9, and Luke 1. For time's sake, we won't turn there. But then let's get down to verse 31. Acts 2, 31. He's seen this before. Okay, so remember, David's a prophet. He saw this before. Spake of the resurrection of Christ, 
So he's saying, listen, all this stuff that David was talking about before, he wasn't talking about himself. David wasn't talking about himself. What was he talking about? He was talking about the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, Christ's soul, neither his flesh did see corruption, referring to Christ. Okay? So, since David could see what God had promised in Psalm 16, okay, what Peter's quoting, David was talking about Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither did his flesh see corruption. And there's so much more that we could talk about. Ephesians 4, 1 Peter, right? The time from when Christ was crucified to the time that he resurrected again, all the events that took place there. Again, no time. I'm so sorry. There's so many verses to get through. I, I blame Troy. This is what he lined me up for this morning. So no, you can ask him. He, he'll have time. He'd know better than I would. Okay, so we know that when Christ died, that his body was buried, but, verse 32, this Jesus, Jesus, hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses, right? After Christ's resurrection, there were all kinds of witnesses that saw the resurrected Christ. Therefore, being at the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. All right, so what's he saying? Now that Christ was ascended to the Father, he's at the right hand, which they were waiting for before they could receive the promise of the Holy Ghost. And now that they have received that promise, Peter says that Christ had shed forth this, which they now see and hear, these cloven tongues, these speaking in one language and hearing in another, etc., so all those things have finally come to pass, and the result is this. Peter said that since all these things that David was talking about had been fulfilled, Christ resurrected, he's ascended, we now have the Holy Ghost, this is the result. Everything that you're seeing and hearing, he hath shed forth this. This is all from God, because he doesn't want you to miss what he is doing. And again, he clarifies, David did not ascend to the right hand of the Father. That was Jesus, okay? He then quotes Psalm 110, where he says, For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he, David, saith himself. So David said it himself, The Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, notice that, said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, until I make thy, fo uh, thy foes thy footstool. David said himself that the position at the right hand of God is reserved for Christ. The Lord, God the Father, said unto my Lord, God the Son, sit at my right hand. Now, Peter has done a much more masterful job at laying all this out than I have. But here's, here's what happened. He said, okay, David said this. Since David was a prophet, he was talking about Jesus. And since all these things about Jesus have been fulfilled... Peter then brings it home and makes a personal application, letter E. He makes a personal application to the crowd that's there. Peter has made it irrefutably clear that Jesus was the Messiah. And then he drops this bomb on him. Acts 2.36, therefore, okay, he's just spent all this time explaining what's happened. He's been using scripture, he supports it with scripture, he expounds on scripture. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly, okay, make no mistake, that God hath made that same Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God, the one who undeniably performed miracles, wonders, and signs, the son delivered by God and taken by wicked hands, who has the keys to hell and death and has been resurrected and witnessed by all, the Holy One prophesied by David, and who is at this very moment exalted and sitting at the right hand of God, God hath taken that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Let's continue reading in Acts. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent. Peter has laid it all out with precision. He has clearly presented Jesus as the Christ, convicts Israel of her sin, with the end goal of calling them to repentance, and now the choice is theirs. 
There's obviously more to their response, and Troy will get into that next week. And so I want us to stop there. Because when they were faced with the truth of God's word, they were shown who Christ was, and when they were confronted with their sin, they had no other option but to repent. And I would be remiss if I didn't extend the same invitation to those of you that are here today that don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So, you can close your Bibles, put your study sheet away. There's no more blanks to fill out. There's a few more verses, but they'll be on the screen. They're not even in your notes. I just want you to listen. Allow me to point out a few things from God's Word that I pray will convict you of your sin and lead you to repentance. You can call upon the name of the Lord today, and He will save you. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4 Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved. It's by the gospel that you're saved. If you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain, for I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received. So this is the gospel. This is what he delivered. How that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried. And that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. It was determined beforehand that Christ would die for our sins and that he would raise again. That's the gospel. That's the good news, that Jesus Christ has died for your sins. It was Christ who took the payment of your sin upon himself because he was the only one that could. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he, God, hath made him, Christ, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Christ was the only one qualified as a worthy sacrifice for our sin because he was without sin. He was perfect. He was holy. He was righteous. And in that transaction that took place on the cross, the sinless Son of God took on our sin for us so that we could be made righteousness. We could be made righteous in him. For us to be made the righteousness of God, it means that God would forgive our sins. Colossians 2, 13 through 14. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened or made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. So it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how bad you think you are. Christ is able to forgive it all. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, he took it out of the way, nailing it, to his cross. So if you understand that you are a sinner and believe that Christ died for your sins, all that is left is to call upon the name of the Lord. And you can do that simply by placing your faith in him as your Lord and Savior. Christ has already done all the work on the cross, and he invites you to apply that same work to your life. And so if you're here today, and maybe this is all new to you, and you're like, what's the difference between a Jew and a Gentile? That doesn't matter. All you have to know is that Christ made a way for the Jews to be saved, and he has made a way for you to be saved. By placing your faith in him for the work that he accomplished on the cross, he will forgive you of your sins. And so if you're hearing that today, and I pray that the Spirit has pricked you in your heart, that He's working in your life. Talk to someone. You can come talk to me. You can come talk to any of the guys on staff that are, that are here. Talk to the person that brought you. But take care of it today. The Jews that we read about today, they didn't wait. That same day, they repented. Man, if that's you, make today the day of salvation. Will you bow your heads with me? I came across this passage as I was preparing this week, and I just want to leave you with this. Psalm 116. I love the Lord, because he hath heard my voice and my supplications, because he hath inclined his ear unto me. Therefore will I call upon him as long as I live. The sorrows of death compassed me, and the pains of hell got hold upon me. I found trouble and sorrow 
Then called I upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I beseech Thee, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord, and righteous, yea, our God is merciful. I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. God, we come to You again today and just ask that any work that You're doing this morning in anyone's heart, God, that they would call upon Your name and they would take that cup of salvation. They would make the payment that You paid on the cross their own. And they would enter into that eternal relationship with You. Lord, pray as we head out here today that we would all uh, view our lives as um, uh, to be lived for You and preachers to the rest of the world, God, and we would apply what we saw today. Uh, to the way that we live our lives, the way that we share your word, Lord, that it would be effective because it allows you to do the work. And so, God, I pray that today you have done the work. I pray that you were honored and you were glorified in everything that was said. And I pray that you'd be glorified as we close in worship. Amen.